So we're, we're doing Exodus, but we're doing Exodus in, in big chunks. And so um, this is, we're covering chapter 19 to chapter 31. So obviously I cannot cover everything in that. But if you're in my small group and you're reading, uh, just put in a mental note, that's 19 to 31. You got some reading to do or some listening to do. Um, and I, I structured this basically around sort of how Exodus is structured. And we're just taking sort of preaching through the, the structure of Exodus. Uh, and so last week, I, I wasn't here. Some of you noticed, asked me where I was. Somebody asked me who won the chili cook-off. And I'm like, well, I, I heard one person, but I know there's three that won, but I, I don't remember because I wasn't here. But I was in Nashville, and the second highest snow from Cleveland was in Nashville. Nashville got hit with a snowstorm, and so it was, it was really icy because they don't really treat the roads that much. The main roads, by the time we got there, had been cleared because they, they hit their... Uh, earlier, and then it was still snowing, but the, most of the snow accumulation had stopped. Um, and my son-in-law does this weird thing that is popular now. I want to know how many ice plungers are there. Are any, do we have any in the church, these people that go to these ice baths? Well, you, some of you are new, might not know, but for years, over 10 years, we had a ministry to the homeless in the church. And so we would raise around $10,000 to fund that ministry through jumping in the lake on New Year's Day. How many lake jumpers were there? Come on. Okay, we had a few. And, um, and so my son-in-law discovered that the pool to his complex doesn't close in the winter. And he wanted to be one of these cold pool people, which is strange. Because quite honestly, the only thing that got me in the lake on New Year's Day was the fact that I raised thousands of dollars. I had no desire. Like New Year's Eve for 10 years, I'd be like, nothing inside of me wants to strip down to a bathing suit and go in a cold lake in the morning. Like, that just, it doesn't appeal to me. I like hot showers. I like saunas. I like hot tubs. And the first time I ever jumped in the lake, I mean, literally, it, it's so strong, it takes your breath away. And so you can't breathe for a minute. And I remember coming up one, it was one of the years, and, and this thin sheet of ice was just scraping down my back, you know, my spine. And I'm like, oh. So when my son-in-law says, I go, how long have you been doing this? He goes, I've been doing it for eight weeks, every Saturday. You want to join me? I'm like, yeah, I did it for 10 years. I'm, I'm okay. I'll, I'll, I'll watch. So he gets in his flip-flops and his T-shirt, and we drive to the little pool in his complex, and um, he walks in there, and it's got coal closed, pool closed, all these signs on the doors. And he's like, wow, it's weird. It's never been closed. He goes, there's a, there's a keypad on the outside. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I can get in that way. And they have a bike lock on it. So we walk back in to talk to the person that's in charge. And... Uh, She's, he's like, hey, why is the pool closed? And he, she says, it's, it's closed. We don't think it's safe. He goes, but I think it's safe. And she says, if you jump in the pool, if you go in the pool, you will be evicted. I'm like, oh, okay. And he butted up against the law. And it's not always fun. But I told him, I go, dude, you're the only guy swimming in this pool. They did this for you. I mean, that's a big deal. You made this happen. You're the only crazy person in this whole complex that wants to keep swimming throughout the winter. 
okay? And by the way, I wanted him to go in there because he says, I stay in for four minutes, and there was a thin sheet of ice on that pool, and I wanted to see him go in there. So I was, I was like, come on, I'm going to watch this. Um, then tell him no hot shower when he gets back because that's always the trick, you know? Got to sit in your coldness. So um, we're looking at a part in Exodus where God's given the law. Okay, God's uh, bringing the law. There's the, you know, the, they're at Mount Sinai. And so they, just for you to get a little context, this whole story started in Genesis where God chose Abraham. And he had a son, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those became the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, one of them, name was Joseph. Joseph ended up getting sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt. There was a famine. And then the, um, the Pharaoh was friendly at that time, and Joseph brought his whole family to Egypt. Warp, 400 years later, there's a new king, a new pharaoh. This is the beginning of Exodus. Exodus starts, and the pharaoh is afraid of the number of uh, Israelites that are living now in Egypt, and so he wants to have uh, some of the male boys killed. Uh, Moses, who was you know, put in a basket because she didn't, mom didn't want him to get killed, was raised in the palace and came back and then fled because he had killed an Egyptian, goes to the wilderness. Exodus has this burning bush experience. God calls him. We go through all the, the plagues where Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder and harder. Finally, they get out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea through a miracle of God, and now they're in the wilderness and in the wilderness, God starts to show them things. One is that he'll provide for them. You remember that he put, a, he put a cloud by day and a fire by night to show them his presence is with them. The early miracles are quail and manna, this funky little wafer kind of thing that they could cook and do things with. They could only gather in the morning, and then they had needed water, and so God said, hit the rock with your staff, Moses, and water comes out. And early on, we're seeing that God is taking care of his people. He can be trusted. And then we come to the part where they start to grumble more. Because, oh, I can provide for you, but now you're grumbling. And last uh, week, uh, Rebecca talked about how we can see even God's grace amongst the grumbling. This week, as God is forming this nation, the nation of Israel, God steps in and shows his presence on top of Mount Sinai, it's got smoke and fire and lightning. It's this powerful experience for the Israelites. And God calls the leaders partway up the mountain. And then he calls Moses all the way up the mountain where he gives him his Ten Commandments. And so God is giving his law to his people so they know how to live in their relationship to God and their relationship to others. So that's the overview that we're covering this time. So early on, it's really funny when you start reading the text that God uses these really special words to describe Israel. He says this. He says, there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I love that. Brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I mean, what an amazing thought that God would call Israel his treasured possession. Isn't that amazing? I mean, to me, it's like deep down in all our hearts. What would it be like for the creator of the universe to look to you or I and say, you're my treasured possession? Isn't that amazing? That you are chosen. And someone said in our small group, our life group, they said, why does God choose Israel? And I said, well, it all started with Abraham. He chose Abraham. And out of Abraham, he had Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob wrestled with God, and God changed his name to what? Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And from then on, he was called Israel. And God, in Exodus, is taking this people that uh, for 400 years knew slavery, probably less than that because they didn't start as slaves, and, and now he's teaching them how to be a nation. But before he does that, he owns them. He calls them to himself. And I, I want you to know that this does not just stop with the Old Testament. This is a theme that's repeated in the New Testament. And Peter repeats this, and he says, and he's speaking now to the church, to you and to me. And he's saying, but you are a chosen people. Do you see where he got this? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, treasured by God. That you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know what? I want you to read that because I think you need to hear that today. In light of what Jeremy was saying in worship, you need to know if you're a follower of Jesus, this is God's word to you, okay? This is 1 Peter 2.9. Let's read it together. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And one of the things I love when I study the Old Testament is you see these themes that you see established in the Old Testament and then repeated in the New Testament. Because God calls his church. He says that you have been grafted into the branch, to the tree of Israel. That you, are, you and I are grafted in, that the promises that were given in the Old Testament will be repeated to those followers of Jesus in the New Testament. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are his treasured possession. And, and, and I want you to know that that's a part of the gospel. Did you know that? Because you and I need to say that to ourselves on a regular basis. I, I'm just being honest. Most people don't wake up and go, ah, I'm his treasured possession, right? You don't look in the mirror and go, oh, you're treasured, right? I mean, something in our human nature says, you know, I'm sort of like a turd, right? Like, 
the best I could do is polish it, but it still will be... It's okay, I think I overstepped a line for she's covering her face. I thought pastors can say that. If they can't, send me nasty emails. I'm sorry. I'll repent boldly. So, you know, you know there's just something about our humanity that we just, we just don't always feel that great about ourselves. And one of the beautiful truths of the gospel is that when we become followers of Jesus, when we turn to him, he gives us a new nature, and he says, you are mine. You are special. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And it's not because you did anything. All you did was receive Christ. It's because of who he declares you to be. Amen? All right. Let's look at this one. Um, as the story goes on, I, I said, because you are a chosen people and a holy nation, here's how you shall live. And he gives the law, and he, and, he, and he starts with what I call God's top ten. And God spoke all these words, okay, these are what they're called the Ten Commandments, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, one. You shall not make yourself a carved image of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And I didn't finish that, but we, we was, I was teaching this uh, to our preschool and teaching the Ten Commandments is challenging when you're talking to little kids. And we just taught them no false gods, no fake gods, okay? To worship the Lord is first no fake gods. And he goes on and he says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So how you use the Lord's name is important. And then he goes on, it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath, to the, is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And Jesus taught that man was made for the Sabbath with Sabbath for man. That we all uh, need a day of rest, a day where we worship, a day where we reflect, a day where we enjoy, a day where we cease working goes on honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land and that the lord your god that the lord your god is giving you you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant we don't have a problem with that cuz none of us have servants anyway or his ox we don't have oxes I don't have a donkey, uh, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. But, and we make, I make a little light of it, but that whole thing, and particularly when you think in our culture, you're not going to be happy until you have X. I mean, that is one of the whole ways we, people, they advertise to us. Your life will be fulfilled when you have this car, or when you have the perfect spouse, or when you have the perfect job. And this idea of covet in the Ten Commandments it really deals with the heart of humanity. And I want, I'm going to just say a few things because people don't understand. When the 
you know, the Bible says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And I've, I've met people over the years, and there was a little movement in evangelicalism, uh, it was called hypergrace, where they said basically that you, you, the law is nothing anymore. And I'm like, no, the, the law is something. I mean, the, the law, I mean, I, I love, uh, Martin Luther talked about three uses of the law. One was to curb sin. That there is a, that we live in a world that, that needs rules and needs laws. Could you imagine driving on the road if you could drive on either side of the road? You know, oh, I'm just going to play chicken with this car. Let's see what they do, you know? I remember when we were driving one time, we were driving from the continent. We lived in Europe, and we drove to England. We took the, the uh, ferry across, one time a ch- channel tunnel across. And, um, and then you have to drive on the other side of the road. And I discovered that in high traffic, I did very well because I just had to follow the car in front of me. But when I went out of the city, my default was to drive on the right side of the road. And I remember I'm just driving in this country road and just driving and driving. All of a sudden, I look ahead of me and there's a car in my lane. And I realize, no, I'm in his lane. I have to get over. And, and so the law is given to curb sin. It's given so that, so that uh, there is a restraining in humanity, in our culture. I, the other reason the, the law was given is Luther talked about it being a mirror. When we look in the mirror of the law of God, we see where we fall short. We see where we fall short. And particularly when you read the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, when, when he, he talked about, hey, you, can, you don't have to commit adultery, the actual act. You can do it in your mind and commit it. Like he totally raised the bar on these laws because he's after the heart. And, and, and Luther would say, look, the, the mirror shows us our sin. And so people would say, well, no, I don't need the law. I don't, I don't, the law has no value anymore. I say, no, it actually will show you where you fall short. And the other thing it does is it's a guide for right or wrong. And so throughout the years, there are these movements. If you want to study theology, there's a movement called antinomianism, which means against the law, that various people have had various views on the law of God. But you need to understand that the law was good. It wasn't bad. The, the, the very word for the first five books of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible are called Torah, which means the law. And the law is good. You and I, when we see the law, we realize that we fall short. We don't measure up. The New Testament says the law was given so that we could see where we fall short and we realize we need the gospel. How many of you are students of a little bit of history and know who Charles Finney is? How many know who Charles Finney is? Charles Finney actually started Oberlin College. He was here, and Charles Finney was, this, was a, a bright lawyer who would go into a community, and he, this involved a lot of prayer and a lot of things, and he would, he would preach the law. I mean, he would do it for days. He would, he would do it until everybody that heard the message realized that they were sinners. They missed the mark. They didn't measure up. And then towards the end of the week, he would give the gospel. And they would have this massive response. 
And he saw revival happen. See, he understood the power of the law to change a heart because the law brought the conviction of sin and the gospel. The good news of Jesus brought freedom, forgiveness, truth, new life, and the Holy Spirit into people's lives. So I think it's good to teach your kids the Ten Commandments. I, th- I think it's, it's helpful because it becomes a guide for the rest of your lives. Because in a world where, where feelings rule, I mean, right or wrong is pretty much based upon how I feel. It's good to know that there's some objective truth that we can come back to and say, you know what? No. This is God's way. This is how you honor him. And even if you can't fully live up to it, you still hold it as the standard. Amen? Amen. It's, I'm going to highlight one thing. I, this, this is not a, I like to preach the big points, but I love this part. And so I wanted to highlight this little passage because uh, the law he goes on about slavery and, and how he, uh, a, a person could become free in slavery and the different rules, how you treat a slave. And, I, and this passage, uh, I remember as a, as a young believer, just really stuck out to me. And he said this. He said, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When they buy a Hebrew slave, they shall, they shall serve for six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free. For nothing, free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him son and daughters, the wife and his, her children shall be the masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awe, and he shall be his slave forever. That passage where he says this slave was happy, and again, don't think of slaves as they were, you know, beaten with whips and things like that. They were, this word, ebed, in, in Hebrew can be servant, can be, you know, it has, a, it has broader range, so it's not just like you're, you know, you're this terrible slave. It, it, it's very much a, sort of a class distinction. And in, in, in uh, the Jewish laws, it only lasted for six years. And, and so here's a slave that says, I like my life under this master. I like my family. I just want to do it for the rest of my life. And God made a way where he could actually, and, and guys, it's the first piercing. So if, if your parents didn't let you pierce, you can say, hey, it's in the Bible. Look. Look, and then, but then they might want you to realize it's, it's pretty big. It's not small. I mean, that's a, people are going to know this thing's in your ear. And, um, and you're going to be a slave forever. And the, and the Apostle Paul, it's really fascinating because he comes back to this theme, and he calls himself a servant or a slave of Jesus. And so if I, if when you became a believer, if I said to you, hey, do you want to become a slave? How would you like to be a servant the rest of your life? He'd be like, 
No. No, I don't think I want that. But, but this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, and remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. There is a freedom that comes through knowing Jesus. And he says, and if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. How do you like that title? I'm a slave of Christ. My life is not my own. And I remember years ago, uh, this guy taught me this little song, and, it, and I'll try it a cappella for you, but it, it, it's based on this passage in Exodus, and something like, um, Pierce my ear, O Lord my God, lead me to your door this day i will serve no other gods lord i'm here to stay and there's a second verse for you have paid a price for me with your blood you ransom me i will serve you eternally a free man i'll never be exodus paints this little picture that you can come under the authority of the most kind and loving master, knowing that he has your best in mind. And that's what Jesus offers us in the gospel. Not a life where you can live however you want, but a life that you live and you constantly say, yes, Lord. Okay, I'll do that. Yes, Lord. Because you're the master and I'm the servant. Amen? Amen. Um, I'm, I'm just going to comment on this one. It's interesting, you know, when we, uh, the nation gives the money to build the, the tabernacle. So what, what you have here is you have God given the law, but then he t talks about this tabernacle that they have to do. And, and God says, hey, this is going to be funded by the people of Israel. And he says, these are all the things that you can give to do that. And then he even equips special people with special gifts to build the tabernacle. And I, I don't know about you, but when I read this part of Exodus, it's, it, to me it's like reading I, Ikea directions or something. Do you, have, you, have any of you read through the, the tabernacle and all the details and stuff? And you're like, wait a second, where is, could I have a, a picture? You know, can I have a little diagram as it goes? Because it, it, it's like really hard to sort of piece it all together as you're reading it. Okay, you have the curtains, and here's the things of the curtains. Here's the colors of the curtains. Here's where you're putting the curtains. Okay, you have the ark, and here's going to do the ark. You have the inner court. You have the candles. You have the bread of bread. You have all this stuff, and you're just going like, oh, my gosh. How do you, how do you keep it all together? Like I, I, and I knew a guy years ago that his dad would, would write the manuals for, um, like, lawnmowers and tractors, and I thought, that's a special gift. Like, there's actually someone hired to write the manuals, you know? And I'm like, boy, that, that's out there. That's, that's not me. But God 
gave people special gifts to not just understand it, but to build it. And, and I love that. And, remind, and I always think about uh, the statement um, where it says, God's commandments are his enablements. Like God is not going to ask us something he's not going to enable us to do. And so it started when people started giving. And then I thought, well, that's just like our, our youth center. We're doing the same thing, you know, they, that we're just saying, guys, we really think God's doing something great among our young people. We've got the, this youth center. It's this church. Do you know, if you're new here, this church is like 60, 61 years old, okay? So that building was the first church. And that's what we're rehabbing and renovating. So if you didn't get a chance to see it, I, put a, I filmed a little communique. If you don't get our communique, give us your information on a communication card, and you'll get our weekly video. It has more that's in your bulletin, things that are coming up, things that are happening in the church. I film a little video and, and just give you little announcements and a few thoughts. Let me, let's look at the last bit, the tabernacle. So in this tabernacle that they're building, so you have the law and then you have the tabernacle, it points both back to the garden and to Jesus. And, and he, here's the beautiful thing. Exodus 25, 22 talks about where in the tabernacle they're going to meet. He says, there I'll meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, that was the, that was the top of the ark, from between the two cherubims that are on the ark of testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandments for the people of Israel. Then goes on, and he's talking to Moses. I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God, and they shall know that I, the Lord, their, I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And if you, if you were following carefully, uh, just before this, there was this testing in Exodus 17 where he says, they, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And God is setting up this tabernacle where he says, I will give you a, a physical symbol where my presence will be among you. And when you study the little ornate details and the flowers and the trees and all that, it, it was really part of this design to point back to the Garden of Eden. Because it goes back to the Garden of Eden where there was this beautiful garden. And it said that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. That there was no barrier between God and man. And it, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't just stop there. It, it, it calls them back to the garden because God is bringing his presence within the nation of Israel. But it also points them towards Jesus in the future. And if you don't believe me, I, I, I showed a translation where it talks about in the beginning of John, and the word became flesh and did tabernacle. The, most, most passages say dwell, but the Greek is literally tabernacle among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of an only begotten, Father, full of grace and truth. And so when the Bible speaks of Jesus coming and tabernacling and dwelling among us, it's taking us back to Exodus where God was saying, okay, you're no longer slaves in Egypt. I'm giving you my presence right here among you. And I was, I was reading this little, a little excerpt from a book by John Ortberg that says uh, where he talks about this. He says, he says, 
let me, let me give you a little picture. He says, the reality with God is that we never are speaking or acting in his absence. You know, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? If I fly to the heavens, you are there. Where can I go? And so as, as uh, God continued to reveal himself, people began to understand, I cannot get away from God. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. However, God allows us sometimes to feel as if we are away from him. And, and, and he goes on and says, which I think he does for a reason. Do you ever drive differently when you see a squad car behind you? Do you ever do that? Does your heart rate go up a little bit? No? He says, why? It's not because... Your heart has changed. It's because and it's not because you see a squad car and think, "Oh, I want to be a good driver." The fact is, it's you don't want to get a ticket. You don't want the flashing lights to come on in your rearview mirror. And so sometimes you see that God doesn't want to force compliance. God is so immense that if He were to show us His visible presence like that cop car behind us, they would be like a forced compliance. But that wouldn't change our hearts. So when God makes it possible in his enormous love for us to live sometimes as if he's not there, even though he is. And I, I just want you to know that this idea that God's presence and his awareness of his presence changes us because this is what God did in the tabernacle. It's designed to continue to change us. Heidi Baker says this. I'll give you a couple quotes. You have God's presence. If you have God's presence, you have his favor. One minute of God's presence can accomplish more than 20 minutes of striving. J.I. Packard says this, and he says, the healthy Christian is not necessarily the extrovert, exuberant Christian, but the Christian who has a sense of God's presence stamped deep on his soul, who trembles at the word of God, who lets it dwell in him richly and constantly meditates upon it, and who tests and reforms his life daily in response to it. Henry Nouwen speaks of God's presence like this. The central question is, are there leaders of the future, truly men and women of God, people with an ardent desire to dwell in God's presence, to listen to God's voice, to look at God's beauty, to touch God's incarnate word, and to taste fully of God's infinite goodness? Beth Moore writes about God's presence. I don't know a single person who truly seems to bear the mark of God's presence and power in his or her life who hasn't been asked by God to be obedient in a way that dramatically, that was dramatically painful. God brought his very presence into Israel and that nation so that his people would know that he is with them always. And he brought his very presence to us in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost so that we can know he is always with us.
I just want you to know that cultivating a life in God's presence is a part of a healthy follower of Jesus. Learning to have conversations with God throughout the day. Not having rooms in your home where it's like, no, this is a room I don't let God in. This is a room I do let God in. This is a, a hallway I let God in, but we don't let God in that closet. You know, I mean, it, 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 this is how we live our lives many times. We, we have rooms where we say, oh, no, this is, these are God's space. Mm, not there. And God, don't look under my bed, right? Like, no. Um, and, and so learning and growing to be a healthy follower of Jesus is letting the Spirit of God permeate all of your life and learning to have conversations with him in every room of your house, in every part of your life. And that's the gift he was giving Israel in the tabernacle, and he gave us even the greater gift by his Holy Spirit, where he calls us his tabernacle, his temple. Why don't you stand up? We'll pray together. Jesus, we are humbled by the thought that you actually draw near to us all the time. And Lord, I, I'm so grateful that you gave us commandments, that you, you call us your child, your children, a kingdom of priests, a holy people. I'm, I'm grateful that even we can take on the the title of a slave, a servant, under the best king and master there ever is, Christ the King. And that you choose to dwell with us. And I just want to open this prayer for those that have never opened their heart to Jesus. If you've never started a relationship with Jesus, and let me just tell you, today's the best day to do it. And you just, you just have to say, Lord, forgive me. I want your forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Come into my life as my leader, my Lord, my Savior. And just let him forgive you, love you. Tell him you want his Holy Spirit to dwell in you so he would, you could feel his presence this morning. And I think maybe there's somebody here who's, who's uh, felt like they've, they have walked away from the Lord and the Lord's allowed that. But today he's calling you back. He's saying, I want you to come home. I want you to come home. If that's you, I encourage you to come and get some prayer ministry as we open up prayer team. Prayer team, if you want to come up and just come on up and we'll be starting a little ministry time. as you're staying in this place before the Lord, just what, what resonated today with you? Is it the fact that you have rooms in your life that you don't allow God in? Is 
are you one of these that just threw away the, the law of God and never really valued why God calls it good? Or do you deal with what Jeremy was talking about earlier where you're just like, you know, I just feel so much shame and I can't, I really can't think that God would speak to me and call me a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a treasured possession. I encourage you to just come and get some ministry if you fit in one of those categories. Just let someone pray for you. just feels completely empty, just drained, and uh, the Lord wants to fill you afresh, encourage you to get prayer ministry, <clears throat> and fill you, you're drained, you don't have just energy, you're at the end of your rope, encourage you to get some prayer. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his favor, his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Prayer ministry is open. Come on and get some prayer. It's a great place to meet the Lord.